0: All right Matthew chapter 2 as we uh, finish up this four messages uh, specifically on the birth of our Savior and uh, it will conclude today then uh, we'll pick up next week in chapter three of course Jesus will be an adult of about 30 years old beginning his ministry and will uh, deal with the temptation and in uh, the early ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, last week, though, we dealt with the visit of the Magi. We talked about who they were, the real historical men of the period. They were wise in a biblical sense. We talked about the biblical motif of the wise and the foolish. Uh, they were wise because they followed the light to Christ the king. The fool rejects the light so that he might be his own ruler. And, of course, that always applies to all people. Herod. Uh, the epitome in our text of the fool hated Jesus. We saw the scribes and the chief priest who were indifferent. But, of course, they all end up uh, not knowing Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter. Uh, if you're in hell, you're in hell. Then we uh, talk about the three gifts that they brought. Gold, uh, speaking of the fact that he is a king building a kingdom. Frankincense, he is a priest who will bring us to God. And then myrrh, which speaks specifically to his death as an atonement for our sins. So a lot of gospel truths found even in those texts. And this brings us to verse 13 uh, here in the flight to Egypt. And what we'll notice and what we'll do with this text is that there were three prophecies cited. First, we've seen a Matthew uh, more than any other of the gospels quotes the Old Testament and being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. And so here we'll see three specific ones, but these are a little different because they do not immediately look like prophecies about Jesus. And certainly in the context that they were given, they would not have been taken that way. So they are unique and I think very interesting in their own right. Um, <clears throat> we've been struck by how Matthew incorporates the old, these Old Testament prophecies into the account of Jesus' incarnation and his life. And so, uh, one thing that's good for us to understand is that Christianity is the end result of Judaism. There are not two religions. This is a confusing, uh, we hear it all the time. Uh, there are not, but, but they are not two different religions. They are the same one. Because both were given by God, and the first, that is Judaism, or what was going on in the Old Testament up until Jesus' day, um, was to get us to the second, to get us to Christ. It, it, you might say that Judaism was the first phase. as is, Israel was brought together and were given laws that spoke about Jesus, that kept things intact until Christ could come born under that law. The first was a old covenant that Christ was born under so that he might uh, earn a righteousness to be imputed to us. So it all flows together. But it was always to bring us to the new covenant. So those who are Jews today or those who are following what they would call themselves Ju- uh, practicing Judaism today have perverted Judaism which was all of um, which was all about bringing us to Christ. And so if you, uh, you know, the, the, old, the the, Jew who is practicing Judaism but rejects Christ is stuck in, you might say in the Old Testament, stuck in a, in the shadow, but have not come over into what they should, it's this new error. And when God destroyed the temple, Judaism became obsolete and useless before God, because the temple was only, uh, speak about so once Christ has come and done his sacrifice you no longer need all the animal sacrifices and so there is in one sense no Jude, uh, Judeo, uh, Christ, uh, Judeo-Christian tradition now when we, people say that we understand what they mean by that but in a sense there's not because there's only the Christian tradition because even everything in the Old Testament was all just Bringing us to that point. It's all one thing. And so to embrace Judaism after the cross is to pervert it into a false religion. It's a religion which has removed Christ. And yet Christ is everywhere in it. That's one thing Matthew is showing us. Christ is in everything that's going on in the Old Testament. It was all about Christ. And so it's to focus on shadows and to miss the whole point. Now, as we come to these three different prophecies, as as Jeff read, uh, there are three different types of prophecies in the Old Testament. One is seen in, say, the types of temple worship I've already alluded to, the the, the sacrifice of animals that were a clear type of the coming Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God. And it's kind of obvious what, what those things spoke about. Another is what we have today, uh, like in verse six, where this is a clear uh, reference. Not not today, excuse me. What we had last week in verse six, where they quoted from Micah, where it says Bethlehem um, was where the Messiah will be born, and that's a clear prophecy where something is going to happen, and so it says. In, in Bethlehem a, an actual city, this ruler, this Messiah will be born. So it's not a type like the animal sacrifice. it's a statement about what's going to happen in the future. It's clear and obvious. Today we have three a different a third type of prophecy that where it's not clear at all what's being said. Now in, in the context of the Old Testament when it was first given, it would have been understood a certain way. But Matthew says, oh, by the way, that's actually speaking about Jesus. And everybody's saying, what? And even the commentators today sometimes struggle a little bit with that. And so that's what makes these a little unique. And yet, once you kind of dig into it, it's pretty interesting. <clears throat> and we see that in, uh, for instance, Jesus, uh, as he's carried to Egypt, to eventually, of course, come back and they will live at Nazareth. Matthew says, oh, by the way, that's to fulfill here in verse uh, 15, the, these, uh, that was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to talk about Jesus at all. And yet, we're being told that in a sense it was. That's what makes it kind of interesting here. <clears throat> and so verses 30, 13 through 15, we have a reference to Jesus' flight to Egypt with his parents. The word flee is where we get our word fugitive from, which is certainly what they were doing. A fugitive from Herod's wrath. Alexandria in Egypt was a, set up to be a refuge for Jews. And it was about a hundred miles away. And it would be outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It had a Jewish population of, of, uh, about a million people. And so it's no, uh, be no surprise that that would be where Joseph would take, um, his, uh, family, but of course we know that uh, it was, wasn't just his decision, it was something that the Lord had always intended that he would have that he would do now Matthew quotes from Hosea 11 He says when Israel was a child I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son now Hosea, what, what was Hosea talking about here well, he's referring really back to what happened in Exodus chapter 4 there we read. Of course, if you were here when we went through Exodus, all this should be fairly familiar to you. When you shall, then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord: Israel is my firstborn son." So this is how Yahweh looked at Israel it was as as a son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Of course, we know Pharaoh didn't want to, but eventually. Uh, he's really left with no choice. And so Israel, God's firstborn son, was called out of Egypt. And of course, as we went through that, we saw not only is this something that we see with Jesus, but we know that we saw a picture of ourselves. We were born under the uh, domination of, of of Satan, this evil ruler who we were slaves to him and the Lord uh, through uh, his the, the gospel, brings us out unto himself. But here, Matthew says that when Hosea said that, not only was he referring back to um, Matthew, what happened in Exodus, but this is actually a prophecy that this was going to happen in, with Jesus Christ. Somehow, Jesus was going to get down to Egypt, and, and God was going to call him out. And of course, that's what we see uh, in our text today. And so the prophecy looks forward, not just backward. It was not given so much that the Jews could know the future originally, because uh, they would have been looking back to their their history. Now, some see this uh, because the again the the context in Hosea was about Israel in Exodus. They they read this and they say, "Well, Matthew here is grasping at straws." Because that clearly wasn't talking about Jesus. Well, the problem is, of course, that assumes that, that this is just a book written by men and can have mistakes, and that Matthew was just uh, kind of doing his own thing, not under inspiration, and, of course, we would reject that out of hand. <clears throat> he and the Jews of his day would not have been that gullible. Uh, he would not have been able to, uh, to quote Hosea here unless he had good reason to. What he is saying is that Jesus, of course, is the embodiment of Israel. Israel was called out of Egypt to give them the law and told to be a light to the nations and to uh, keep covenant with God. And, of course, they failed entirely. But Jesus is the one Jew who was called out of Egypt, who did keep covenant, who did obey the law, and did is a light to the nations. And so what we're being told here is that what Israel went through not just demonstrated our salvation and relationship with God, but also was looking forward to what Christ, the true Israelite, was going to do. So that makes it a very interesting to me prophecy. Everything that Israel went through spoke of Christ and what he did in their redemption. And so Hosea is explaining that the events of Israel in Egypt foreshadowed in some ways the events of Jesus' life. He might not have realized that, but Matthew's letting us know through the Holy Spirit what's going on here. And so that's the first thing there, verses 13 through 15. The second one begins in verse 16 through verse 18. <clears throat> and here we have, of course, the, what, the slaughter of the innocents, as we refer to it, where Herod, Seeing that the wise men had tricked him and not told him when, what was going on, he knew that he was that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. That it, that the light must have appeared to the wise men about two years before that, so to be safe, kill every male child uh, two years and younger. And when he does that, of course, you can imagine that there was a lot of uh, mourning going on. And so now Matthew quotes from Jeremiah and says that this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah uh, chapter thirty one, uh, where a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So say, well, what's that about? Well let's turn back to Jeremiah. And read in chapter 31 and read a little bit more of the context. And I think we can start to make a little bit more sense of this. Of course, what going, what's happening here is that when, Bab, when Israel fell and Babylon came in and they, uh, they, they carried off, they killed a lot of people, but they carried off the best and the brightest of the children. Daniel and his three friends were part of that experience. They were carried off into captivity. And so you can imagine the mothers and parents who were left behind, knew knowing they would never see their children again in the morning, the lamenting that would be going on. And so we read about this in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who has scattered Israel will gather them and will keep them as a the shepherd keeps his flock. So, what What? We're learning here in Jeremiah that Matthew doesn't actually bring out, but this is when you refer to the passage, you're referring to the text of the, the context. Is that while this is an awful thing that they're going through, of course, it's their own fault. Don't lose hope, because the Lord is going to bring Israel back and do a great work. Of course, a great work of salvation, right? Verse eleven. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hand too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud in the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in dance, and the young men shall be old, and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them. And give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast. Uh, uh, it, I will feast the soul of the priest at, with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness. Declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So then he goes on in verse 16. Thus says, Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. So he's, he's giving them some hope. All is not lost. And, of course, when is all this fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled um, in Jesus. So by these women in Bethlehem lamenting for the loss of their children, he, he refers back to when it happened in uh, Jeremiah's day. In the fall of Jerusalem, saying that a very similar thing, just as they found comfort in the fact that a Redeemer would someday come, so the women in Bethlehem and all of Israel can take comfort in the fact that yes, they've lost their children, but one has come to them who shall bring them salvation. So he's, he's kind of, he's kind of using that, saying that, that, that ultimately this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the, um, things that the liberals love to do is to, uh, point out that there's no record that Herod ever did this in history, and so that it probably didn't happen. Well, remember, Matthew has already made the exile a turning point in Israel's history in chapter one. Remember that it was fourteen generations from Abraham to David, then fourteen from David to all of Babylon, like there's 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 something special happened there. Abraham, David, something happened here, and then the next thing was, of course, the birth of the sa- Savior. So that's a turning point. And of course, we know it was a, it was kind of the end of the old covenant, or at least as far as the nation goes in in, in, in uh, the the fall, the, the uh, cap- Babylonian captivity. It was the end. Also of David's line of descendants actually sitting on the throne from that point on, they're waiting for that kingdom to be reestablished and someone to sit on the throne. Of course, the Jews of Jesus' day, their problem was they assumed that it was, that kingdom was going to look a lot like David's kingdom and someone sitting on an actual throne in Jerusalem. There are a lot of people today who still think that's going to happen. And of course, they completely missed the point that no, Jesus is the one who fulfilled that. He's sitting on the throne of the the kingdom of God, but he's in heaven doing it. It's it's a spiritual kingdom of both Jew and Gentile. So perhaps what Matthew is saying is that that the true exile is over. The true exile that we all uh, as sinners uh, have have experienced in separation from God, just like Israel was separated from their inheritance, from their land. So sin has brought ruin upon all mankind, and that now in the birth of Christ that is uh, is over, and we're going to through Him be brought back to the kingdom. You see, so uh, very similar things going on. And of course, Israel has missed that, and, and they still continue to wail at the weeping at the wailing wall it, to this day. Because they've missed their Savior. And they're still waiting for one to come and to deliver them. And they don't realize he's already come. And of course they're waiting for someone to come to deliver them in the flesh. And so the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem should have been seen as the climax of weeping. Because Christ has come. But unfortunately they still weep in unbelief. But what about the fact that there's no secular evidence about this? Well, the account very accurately depicts Herod the Great. In other words, everything about this account makes sense if you know anything about history. Uh, Last week we saw that he is the poster child for someone who must sit on the throne and has no use for God, has no use for anybody who would be a threat to his rule. He killed um, his uh, favorite wife because he didn't trust her. He killed two of his sons. One of his sons, he killed just before he died, because the son he felt was making too much commotion by the fact that he was going to take his dad's place, and it and made him irritated. He killed him. That's just the kind of person he was. So the murder of a few dozen of a dozen or so uh, babies in Bethlehem, nobody would have hardly noticed, because he doing this kind of stuff all the time, and. No doubt Herod would not have broadcasted that around anyway. Um, but the the main thing that I wanted to, to think about when it comes to uh, this is that the Bible does not need to be confirmed by outside sources. So just because we don't happen to have any history, recorded history that something happened doesn't matter because it's the word of God. And it's interesting that when we do find archaeological evidence of things, it always supports the Bible. It never not does not support the Bible because the Bible is God's word. But we don't say, "Well, you know, until I have historical proof that this happened, I'm not going to believe it." That that means you don't have faith. You don't have you don't believe the Lord. So we reject that again out of hand. And so that's the second prophecy. One that originally no one would have t- uh, really ta- taken to mean, to refer to the coming Messiah. But Matthew is showing again that the Lord is working all these things out in his way. Uh, so that after the fact, you can look back and see that this is the Lord's work all along. He's known what was going to happen from the very beginning. And that brings us then to verse 19 and the return to Nazareth after Herod's death. Now, his son, Archelaus, was just as ruthless as his father, so Joseph had every reason to worry about going back to uh, Judea. Pilate had banished Archelaus to Gaul at some point in the future because he, he was so hated by the Jews he felt the Jews were about to um, rebel, and so he just removed him. That's how bad he was. And so while it appeared that he was going to head back to Bethlehem, uh, an angel in, in his, this second vision tells him, uh, that he doesn't, not to go back there where you'd be under Archelaus's realm. Uh, and so he goes up to Galilee, which would be under another one's, uh, rule, uh, which happens to of course be his hometown where he was from to start with. You go and read Luke 2 when Joseph gets married and they travel down to Bethlehem. They leave Nazareth. That's where Joseph already was. But for some reason he was going to go back to Bethlehem and the Lord says, no, that won't be a good thing for you to do right now. Then Matthew does this for the third time. He kind of yanks this Old Testament text out of nowhere, it seems, and says, this is fulfillment of it shall be, he shall be called a Nazarene because he goes back to, um, Nazareth. Well, there's a problem here. You can't go to any Old Testament text and read where it says he shall be called a Nazarene. And so again, the the even the good commentators have struggled a little bit trying to understand what does he mean. Well, first of all, he uses the term prophets. He doesn't name any prophets, which is not unusual. And he refers to many, to plural. Prophets said this. So in other words, it's spoken in different places in the Old Testament. And so when prophets are referred to in plurality and they're not named, usually in those cases, the New Testament writer is referring to several places where it's it's spoken of, but he's not, not talking about just one place. And I certainly think that's what's happening here. Some have thought that, well, what's going on here then is that by Jesus being a, uh, well, first of all, some say this is fulfilled in that Jesus was a Nazarite. When it says Nazarene, you remember Samson was a Nazarite. You take a vow where you'll never eat any alcohol and and you'll you'll never cut your hair and so forth. And uh, the problem with that is that there's no real connection between Nazareth and which Nazarene would be someone who lives in Nazareth. There's no connection between that word and Nazarite. They look alike, but there's, there's no connection. It's different words entirely. So that's a mistake of someone who doesn't really know the language who, who came up with that idea. And Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. Uh, John the Baptist was, remember he ate locusts and, and so forth. He, when he, when the angel told, his dad Zechariah, if he be born, he said he shall be a Nazarite from birth. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus uh, drank wine. Of course, John the Baptist could not. So so that's just on its face uh can't be the, the what's going on here. So well what does it mean? Well others say that it's a fulfillment of passages uh like um Isaiah fifty three where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows that equated with grief. Um, And so uh, he was despised. Um, If you think of John uh, 1, 46, Nathaniel said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? So he was despising Jesus. So the idea is that one of the reasons he was despised was because he was from Hicktown. He was up north uh is where un- if you weren't in Judea, especially around Jer- Jerusalem, you were a country bumpkin, and you remember that uh you know so this would be an example where Nathaniel says, Can any good come out of Nazareth? That wouldn't make any sense and so people say well, that's that's what the Old Testament's talking about when he says he's despised and, and passages like that. well, um that certainly is true, but I think that's a stretch, and I think we can do better than that as well. Um, many times in Old Testament prophecy, especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the coming Messiah is referred to as a root or a branch. Remember the branch of Jesse. And we've talked about that many times. Um, it's sometimes referred to as stem. Uh, a shoot shall come up. You know, a root from this root. So, it turns out that Nazareth, uh, this, this uh, comes from the root word of Nazar, which means branch, and so I think there's a very strong case to say that what he's saying is that he shall be called a Nazarene. Mean he shall be called uh, from he shall be called the branch. In other words, it's like saying uh, he he's uh, comes from the city of the branch. Nazareth is uh, interpreted would be the city of the branch. So he shall and he shall be called the branch, which he was in the Old Testament. In fact several places. And so it's, it's kind of like a, just a, a clear statement. They, they should it should have been put, some bells should have been going off. Jesus from the city of the branch because the Messiah was going to be called the branch. Well, let me give you some um, <clears throat> examples of this. Well, he was despised by men. bed of souls. The, excuse me. Down here in chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So, different words, shoot and branch, but you get the idea. It's something that has come from the root. This this shoot, this branch, this stem. And of course, Jesus, it's a prophecy among other things that's telling us that Jesus shall be born from David. He'll be born a Jew. He'll come forth from the line of David. Branch, stem, stem. Uh, shoot! They all say really the same thing, right? There's another word for branch that is used over in Zechariah three eight. Hear now, old Joshua, the high priest. You and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will serve my bring my servant the branch. Now there we see it uh, another time. But the problem is some kind of. D- don't like to use this because that word branch isn't the same word Hebrew word that is used elsewhere like in um Isaiah for instance. But notice what he says here. You your men are assigned. Well, how are they assigned? In other words what, what's going on here is Zechariah is going to see something that's going to be a big a type, a sign of this branch, right? And in chapter six we see this. He says, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, remember, high priest couldn't be king. But he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Joshua, the high priest, and I want you to make a a crown. Not not the crown that that the king of Israel would be wearing at the time, but make a crown. I want you to put it on here because I want you to see something. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And everybody would have known you're talking about the branch. Just like we don't always use branch. We might use limb, stem, or whatever, twig. We have different names, but it's the same idea, right? The man whose name is the branch, for he shall... Branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And, of course, we know Jesus is the one who's building the temple. So this branch is seen in Joshua, who is a high priest and a king. And, of course, Jesus is the one who brings all those offices together. He is king. He is priest. He is prophet. Uh, those things didn't mix in the Old Testament, especially the priest and the king. So this big object lesson uh who and, and it says he he shall be the branch and remember that Joshua is the name Jesus in in in, in Jesus's day they would have been saying Yahshua. and so take Joshua and put a crown on his head and say Yahshua, uh the person who is the branch and now you come here to Matthew and he says, Jesus, Joshua shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called someone who is from the city of the branch. And so in my mind, what should be happening here is that uh, I think what, what Matthew is trying to get us to do, the readers to do, is to say, clearly Jesus is, is being made obvious, connecting all the dots that Jesus is the fulfillment of, these prof- of all these prophecies found in the Old Testament. Now, some dismiss this because they say, well, like I said, that's a different word. And so, uh, that's not the word that Dazzlerus comes from, so you can't, you can't do this. Well, I'm gonna to beg to differ. Here, uh, Jeremiah 23 uses the same word that Zechariah uses. Not the word that he used earlier, not the word that Isaiah used. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, same word that Zechariah uses, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So you got here, you saying basically connect, make it a very clear connection between what was going on in Zechariah's day and Jeremiah making a very similar prophecy. So I think. There's a connection there that you can say, yes, this is exactly who Matthew is referring to in, the, in some of the texts that Matthew is referring to. Jesus shall be, all he's saying is that Jesus, Yahshua, shall be called the branch. It's a fulfillment of all these prophecies. So I, instead of sitting there struggling to see what in the world does this mean, I think it couldn't be more obvious what it means. It was like a neon sign in the Old Testament telling us how to recognize the Savior when they come, Jesus of Nazareth. When the, when the Hebrew hears Jesus of Nazareth, they're hearing Yahshua of the branch. <clears throat> and if they reject him. Turn over, in closing, let's turn over to Psalm chapter 2. I want to I say, what do we do with all this? Because I see in, in these three prophecies, certainly in the last one, but in all of them, we're seeing Matthew connect the dots of the Old Testament, so there's no excuse for us not to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah to save us from our sins, right? If Matthew has made any point in the first two chapters, it's that, over and over again. Now let's just read though, <clears throat> chapter 2, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Well, Immediately, be think of Herod, the, the king who is plotting. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So as you reject Christ, you are rejected, of course, Yahweh, God Almighty, <coughs> saying, let us burst their bonds apart, let cast away their cords from us. That's what Herod's trying to do in the slaughter of the innocents. Well, what's God's reaction? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. This is the only time that the Lord has, God has ever said to laugh, and it's not because he thinks anything's funny. He's laughing because it is so pathetic that his creatures would think that they can uh fight against his counsel. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. <clears throat> and by the way, this is all a prophecy. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have forgotten I have begotten you. So when did this take place? Well, I think it took place at the Ascension. When Christ was raised from the dead. And we don't have time to. We talked about Daniel 7. Matthew 24, when Christ was coming in clouds of heaven, that's a reference to Daniel 7, where he is given a kingdom. And so when Christ ascended on high after doing his work, he came in the clouds of heaven, and he was given a kingdom. He was, uh, it was a coronation day as it were. And what does, what does he say here? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Christ, of course, never had a beginning. But he had a beginning to his mediatorial reign. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possessions. Well, the last thing Jesus said before he went to heaven was all authority has been given to me. I am with you to the end of the age. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Let's let's build this kingdom. Let's through the gospel build the church, my body. So that's what he's saying here. Verse 9, what will be happening as he builds his kingdom? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So it's easy. It's not like the, the Lord's not struggling to defeat Satan and the kingdoms of this world. He does it very easily. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned O rulers of earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and he perish in the way. Christ came, you either accept the Lord or you reject Christ. There's no in between. And if you reject him, of course, as it says here, he you bear the wrath of God. Blessed are all who though who take refuge in him. So it's just a great psalm about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the only um so the evidence has been building, and Matthew is building on this evidence, and, and why would we reject it? And if anyone's here today who, who have not been taking this seriously, the evidence, the, the, the fulfillment of Scripture, there, there's no excuse to reject who Jesus Christ is. And the only safe way um, to uh, in your relationship with Jesus, it says, is to kiss the Son, take refuge in him. And so the slaughter of the innocents shows the hatred of the world against Jesus. But Jesus came to divide. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. You say, well, he's the king of peace. Yes, he, he brings peace between uh, us, the sinner, and the Lord. But but those who reject him are going to turn the wrath upon the church, as we saw in, in Revelation. Uh, so uh, he says, daughter will turn against mother and father against son. So I finish with Luke chapter 2 here. Perhaps. We can get to that last one here, Rick. Help me out. This things up. Oop. My fault. I'll let you put it on there. <laughs> Luke 2, 2,9. Thank you. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This of course is in Luke. Uh, to where he's being presented in the temple. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That it was always God's intention that to save some through Christ and to let others go their way. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And so how you receive Christ or what you do with Christ reveals your heart. Always has been that way. Always will be. And I hope that as we go through these things, we see the connection with the New Testament with the Old Testament. And that this is not just different men writing things, kind of, you know, doing the best they can. This is one book uh, inspired by one God to reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we'll stop there. Any questions or questions? Hope you have a good week. Here's Miss.